0: Reading from verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of the Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in the sight he had no concern about anything but the food he ate now joseph was handsome in form and appearance and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on joseph and said lie with me but he refused and he said to his master's wife behold because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put me and he has put everything that he has in my charge he is not greater in the house than i am "'Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, "'because you are his wife. "'How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? "'And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, "'he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or be with her. "'But one day he went into the house to do his work, "'and none of the men of the house was there in the house. "'She caught him by his garment, saying, "'Lie with me.' But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled from the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, "See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me and to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his." until his master came home. And she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me and to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Father, your word is important, not just to hear it in our ears, but to do it. Help us, dear God, to apply this word today to our lives. Help us to find you daily in the scriptures and to seek you and further our relationship with you so that we may be a witness in this dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Well, good morning again. I know you've already been welcomed, and let me add my own voice there. It's good to be together, open God's Word, start with a little story, try to collect these things. Um guy's name was Larry Davis, and he was walking out of church. Uh, I was in St. Louis, Missouri last year about this time, and uh, he observed a car coming down the road, and it was down, it was down a hill, and the car was going too fast, and uh, in fact the car was accelerating all the way down this short block. So much so that Davis estimates that when the car uh, left the road as it came to the T, It was going 80 to 90 miles an hour, still accelerating up the small knoll that was at the end of the road, launching itself into the air and finally coming to rest on the roof of the house in front of it. Uh, I hope we don't see that today when we are walking out of the church at any point. I hope you never see that in your life. What struck me about it is just this picture of being caught on the roof of a house in a car, uh, being suspended, as it were, between heaven and earth. It seems like a metaphor for life. Uh, We find ourselves there a lot. You know, we sometimes of our own doing, you know, find ourselves careering out of control, uh, launching ourselves, finding ourselves here, bearing the marks of that. Uh, He was pulled from the car by the fire department with some broken bones, blood, that kind of stuff. We, we feel that. Yet there's also this heavenly perspective that we want to touch into. Uh, and it seems like this is where this story in Genesis chapter 39 pushes us. It pushes us between the earthly experience, what we can see, taste, touch, what we can catalog. Verses 7 to 20, the experience that Joseph has in Potiphar's household. And then the heavenly perspective. You know, what we, uh, what we know to be true because it's being told us by God. Verses 1 to 6 and 21 to 23. We know that these both are true. But we try to we try to make sense of it. We try to hold them in tension. One writer puts it this way, talking about these two perspectives. He says, Our life is lived at great risk, as we see in verses seven to twenty. It's lived in the face of deceit, temptation, seduction. It's lived in the empire where there appear to be ways to gain self-security. On the other hand, verses one to six and twenty-one to twenty-three our high theology. Things here are confidently settled. There are no issues, no abrasions, no incongruities. Our exposition, our understanding of this passage must find a way uh, affirming together this confident, high theological claim and the conflicted life in the empire. At the same time, both of these things are true. Life is confidently settled, and life is lived at great risk. Either taken by itself is false. So with that in mind, I've divided our our section this morning into, into two uh, two areas, you know, where we experience risk, uh, and then the expectation of reward that we see. Through this passage, probably you know it's. I don't know we we'll spend fifty percent of time on each one. We're gonna take the the risk part, seven to twenty. Take that apart very carefully, but we will then listen closely for what God is telling us with regards to reward. So, risk. When you look at the text, uh, you see that Joseph uh, is in view. I, I say that because. The story is Jacob's generations, right? Going back to 37.2, these are the generations of Joseph, Jacob. Uh, at the end of chapter 37, Joseph is sold into slavery. Then last week, you know, we looked at Genesis chapter 38, which chronicled the life of Judah. Uh, from the time that Joseph was sold into slavery, then projecting ahead some 20 years we're, we're told how god is working in the life of judah uh, b- chapter 39 brings joseph back into center stage and we see a couple of time markers in 39 1 39 6 where it says now joseph had been brought down to egypt or now joseph was handsome in form and appearance And both time, that indicates, like, we are to see, you know, meanwhile, while all this stuff is going on in Judah's life, there are things going on in Joseph's life, too. And then in verse 6, while all of this stuff is going on from a heavenly perspective, there are earthly things that are happening to Joseph as well. So Joseph is brought into view, and we see right away that he is a man who is acquainted ...with the risks of life. Uh, we, we've already seen that, right? He's, he's been betrayed by his brothers. He's been treated difficultly. He's been treated harshly. He's been sold into slavery. He knows what it is to be an object and not a person. He was betrayed. Uh, throughout the course of this story, he, he experiences the risk of isolation... I mean, he's completely ripped out of his family. He's, you know, in this place trying to, to start a new life, trying to survive, trying to make it. And then, of course, he has the temptation, the seduction that comes about him. And that's the focus of this story. And I want to spend some time looking at that this morning. So if you're looking for a subpoint, you can uh, use seduction as the, the place where we experience risk. Now, this is the second chapter in a row where sexuality is forefront. Uh, chapter 38, we saw that particularly with Judah, his appetites and, and how he sought to uh, satiate those appetites sexually. Here we see sexual temptation come uh, again, this time, uh, it's not Joseph, the male, who is the pursuer, but it's Mrs. Potiphar, who obviously is the female, who is the pursuer at this point. Why does the Bible spend so much time dealing with our sexuality? Well, it's so intrinsic to who we are. Uh, you know we we are spiritual beings and we are sexual beings. We are It's tied up kind of at the core of our being. It's so intimate. It's so vulnerable. Places where God is to be, the intimate, vulnerable places of our life. And and so we oftentimes are led astray by our appetites that get satisfied uh, in a sexual way. A couple of comments just about this. Uh, first of all, from sort of Mrs. Potiphar's perspective, uh, you know, sometimes when we read these stories, we, we want to know who's wearing the white hat and who's wearing the black hat. Uh, you know, who who are the good people? Who are the bad people? Well, if we approach life that way, we would have a difficult time, right? Well, if we approach ourselves that way, we would have a difficult time because. I think it was Alexander Solzhenitsyn who said, you know, the line between good and evil runs right through the heart of every man. Uh, we, we recognize that it's, it's just not always that binary. It's not always that easy when it comes to, to telling right and wrong. Certainly here we see where Mrs. Potiphar is struggling. Uh, but she's struggling, Right. We don't know what her life was like. She was married to somebody who was big and important. You know, did he spend time with her? Was he nurturing his relationship with her? Uh, Was she, you know, what kind of background did she have? Was her family of origin the type that, that taught her the things that she needed to know about relationships and all of these things? We don't know. She comes across as sort of a flat character. But I think we can be a little bit sympathetic with her because we know our own hearts and we know our own lives. And, and so we, we see her as this person who's trying to fill a hole like Judah was. You know, Judah was trying to fill the hole that he, he, he didn't fill with God and he left the covenant community. Mrs. Potiphar is trying to fill a hole as well and she also is looking in the realm of sexuality. We don't often talk about sexuality and women a whole lot. It seems like, especially from church's perspective, uh, you know, we talk about things like pornography, all of those. It's, it's geared at men. Men are the predators. Men are the ones who really struggle with, with lust and the sin of the eyes. And you know, women are much more relational and all of these different things. Um, it's probably a blind spot. I was helped uh, by Harvest USA this spring, actually. They, they put out a whole magazine uh, focused on women and sexuality. Harvest is a, is a ministry, if you're not familiar with it, they have so many good resources. You can easily find them online. It's a ministry that arose out of 10th Pres in Philadelphia, uh, entering into sexual struggles, same-sex attraction, pornography, uh, all of these different things. In fact, I, I think um, John Freeman, who is the director, was here uh, at Christ Church maybe a decade ago and, and doing a, a seminar uh, related to, to sexuality. But this particular uh, issue, like I said, was de- de- dedicated to women and sexuality. In it, Ellen Dykus, uh, who is on staff and just deals with women and their sexual struggles, says this. Why does the church have a blind spot when current statistics on porn use show that 60% of females ages 18 to 30 acknowledge that they look at porn monthly? Is that number higher than you anticipated? You know, we're not surprised if it's the guys, right? But With females, are we surprised by that? We, you know, maybe, but that's, we probably shouldn't be. Um, She goes on to say, pardon me, but I have to yell, and here she goes, all caps in her article. This is a dangerous blind spot. Uh, It's leaving Christian women to struggle alone in silence and shame. I have taught on sexuality to women from all over the United States and several countries, and their testimony is consistent. We are struggling. And we don't hear the church talking about this as a women's issue. And we don't know where to get help. Mrs. Potiphar helps us to see that you don't have to be a male to struggle with sexual issues. This is something that the whole church struggles with, and, and, and we need to uh, find the church to be the kind of place where we can come and we can struggle. You know, part of the reason maybe why, you know, we don't address it in pulpit in different places is there's a certain awkwardness for me as a man, you as a woman, you know, I, I am more than available for you to, to come and to, to share those things with me, but I'm probably not the person that's going to walk with you through those. You know, I can be a resource that can help to point you to mothers, sisters in the faith. Uh, we have a wonderful staff that has several women on it. That certainly can help you. Our women's ministry is full of mature, godly women. There are definitely resources available in the church, and and we want to be a place that can connect you of whatever gender you are with people that can help you. I know some cases it's, it's, it's deeper than just even a friendship it's it's counseling you got some work to do, dealing with some baggage, family of origin, things that may have happened to you in your life uh, these are the types of things that this has to be a community where where we can come and we can walk alongside of one another as we think about the risk right in this world uh we we know that one of. Satan's primary ways to take us away from the Lord is through sexuality. Of course, Joseph experiences this from the other side, uh, not the one with the whole necessarily. But this is a real risk for him, you know, this temptation. And surely it was a temptation for him. I mean, Joseph, again, is somewhat of a flat character, but he's a man. And, and he, is, uh, he surely is tempted in the moment by the opportunities that are placed in front of him. But it's a risk. It's a risk for his career, his, his life, you know, there in Egypt. Like I said, he's isolated. He doesn't have any hope of ever seeing his family again. If he loses this position, what does he actually have in life? And he may actually lose his life. Uh, it's been commented that it's rather unusual that Potiphar, it's probably not the guy's name, by the way, it's probably his title. Uh, He's sort of the captain of the secret service for the pharaoh. Uh, But the Potiphar, if if this would happen with a slave, would most likely put him to death. Uh, and, And Joseph probably is very aware of it. The fact that he puts him in prison may have more to do with Potiphar's own suspicions of his wife's involvement of him. The text says Potiphar was angry. It doesn't say who he was angry at. And so Joseph finds himself in prison. But the risk is very real on a, uh, you know, a day-in, day-out basis with regards to Joseph. And you know we know that. It's amazing, you know, you think about uh, affairs, you think about, you know, pornography, work computers, all of these different things like that, we, we know the risks that are there in terms of our families and in terms of our relationships, in terms of our jobs, all of that is very, very real, but the pull is so very, very strong. But Joseph also knows that he has a risk with regards to the divine, right, right? He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? How how can I do this thing in the here and now, you know, in the present that's so full of senses and is so sensual in that way? How can I do this great thing and sin against God? Joseph knows the risks that exist, not in the external world, but in the world of his heart. And we know that too we we know that you know we know that when we find ourselves in those situations we 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 know the risks that are there and we surely have to take stock of that i want to say just a couple of things about temptation you know temptation comes into all of our worlds uh and I'm sure many of you can connect with the sexual temptation, but it's all kinds, right? We said that last week, you know, we have the temptation to, you know, see how many likes we can get on our Instagram posts because we are going to, you know, use that to judge you know, how popular we are and how loved we are. We have the temptation to, to work like a dog because we're getting our security from the affirmation we're getting at work. We have the temptation to, you know, pursue money, to pursue uh, influence. Any of these things, they're all God's substitutes. We have those temptations. First thing about temptation. Temptation itself is not a sin. You are tempted. You know, these are things that are brought into your heart, uh, but they themselves are not sin. It doesn't become sin until we latch on to these things. Hebrews 4.15 is very instructive for us because it tells us that Jesus, you know, fully man, was tempted in every way like we were, yet without sin. He was without sin. So he knew temptation, but yet he sinned not. You know, what would it mean if Jesus was taken up to the mountain and Satan asked him to make the stones into bread, if that wasn't actually a temptation for him? It surely was, but Jesus stood against the temptation. And that's the second thing about temptation, is that while it in itself is not a sin, it definitely is something that we need to stand against. And and this is where, you know, we walk that line as Christians, you know, when we affirm that temptation itself is not a sin, there can be the, the temptation to say, okay, well, if it's not a sin, I can allow this, you know, in my heart. But when we give it a, a foothold in our heart, the temptation grows and, you know, that's when we find that we've actually grasped onto it a little bit and we're allowing it to flourish. And, you know, this is just the, the way of our, our thoughts. This is why David is so rigorous before the Lord. He's saying, search me and know me, try me, see my inmost being. You know, see if there's anything offensive in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We have to be rigorous with our inmost being and we have to, uh, we have to resist in the power of the Holy Spirit the temptations that come to us. I mean, surely you can see so many ways that that is applied uh, in our life. Um, and note too, verse 10, uh, day by day, Day by day, she was after him, right? Lie with me. Come on, just do it. Lie with me. Come, just, and, and, and notice too, I don't know if you picked up on that. Uh, he, he would not listen to her, lie beside her, or be with her. You know, you've got sort of three different levels there. You know, listen, lie beside, not lie with, uh, or be with her yeah he he did not in this moment in this particular way he did not give sin a foothold at all uh, temptation I, I, are you are you are you stewarding your temptation well uh, do we know do we are we watchful of, of what is happening in our life and then secondly so that that was all this is the biggest point by far and the biggest subpoint. that was seduction right Th- there's also this self-security that I think is in view here and we're somewhat warned about you know Joseph God is the hero of this story I, I want to re-emphasize that over and over and over again you know, oftentimes in our Sunday school presentations, even in the ways that we think about these, we tend to think about Joseph as the hero. Joseph is a type of Christ, but God is the hero. And uh, we already saw in chapter 37 that, that Joseph was, was proud, right? He, he, he was not very wise in the way he went about his relationships with his brothers, and I wonder here, too, I- exactly if, if Joseph is being as watchful as he could in his own life. Verse 8 and 9, you know, she says simply two words, lie with me. He gives her a lot of words uh, in response. And he actually says, like, I- I'm as great as your husband. I mean, he's, no one is greater in, in the house than, than me. You know, I'm kind of at the par with your husband. The only thing that he's kept from from me is is you. Uh, so so he's, he's very confident in the place where God has him. So much so that in verse 11, and this is what I like, Joseph, what are you doing? He goes into the house with only her. Like, that's not a very good thing to do. I mean, we, we need to really watch ourselves and not have so much confidence in ourselves. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, he says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You know, there is that warning that that we need to watch the situations that we put ourselves in because we can't always trust our hearts. You know, if you are addicted to cocaine... Uh, it's not a very good idea to go to a party where there's going to be lots of cocaine available. You may feel like you want to stand against that, but the draw is just going to be so powerful. You know, we have to be wise about the situations that we, we put ourselves in. I mean, sticking with the sexual theme, we, we have to watch, and as parents, we have to help our kids watch. You know, it's not very smart to to put an unfiltered computer alone with a teenager in their room. I mean, it's, you're just asking for trouble. You know, there is, and, and let's just take teenager out of it. You know, none of us are, are really capable of that kind of thing on a day-in and day basis, day-in and day-out basis. We, we need to be careful uh, about the situations that we allow ourselves in, relationally. Uh, men and women, he noticed, you know, I'm sure, over the years, just how, how, how much we've had to even change the way that we do counseling at the church, and you know the way that we engage in youth ministry and these types of things, the way that we take our nurseries. Why? Because we don't want to create those situations in, in which the temptation would be too much. So it's a very real world for Joseph, and it's one of the things I love about these stories is like they, they meet us on the ground, right? They, they meet us in the real world of temptation, of sin, of, of, of deviant hearts and, and deviant lies. But they don't leave us there. I mean, for Joseph, it, it's just another disappointment. She makes up these, you know, she grabs his cloak, disrobes him makes up the story. You know, Potiphar has no choice but to send Joseph out and sends him to prison. I mean, this is the second time that Joseph has been disrobed and sent down, right? Uh, This is his pattern in life. But it's not the whole story. And in fact, The point of this chapter is the risk that we experience in our world is not the whole story. There are things going on behind the curtain that speak to us. Let me start that over. There are things going on behind the curtain that are truer than the things that we experience in real life. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verses 1 to 6, and then also at 21 to 23. Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, bought him. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became successful, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. As his story goes on, and he's sent to prison again. Verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all of the prisoners. There is a story that is being woven here in the life of Joseph. Three things let me just emphasize for you. The first is this. God is working so that his plan of blessing will ultimately be realized. God is working so that his plan of blessing will be ultimately realized. You know, God has a plan for his world. Now, in the Old Testament, it focused in on, on the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, and now it's expanding to Joseph. And he's got to protect them through the famine that is coming. And he's got to give them a place where they can be incubated and come into a nation. A- and his plan is to move them into Egypt. Jacob doesn't know anything about this. Judah doesn't know anything about this. Joseph doesn't know anything about it. But God knows. And he is at work so that Joseph can be in the place where he can be a blessing to God's people and to the nations as a whole. Uh, God is not delinquent when it comes to working his plan. He is faithful in terms of laying this out. Now, does Joseph know this at this time? I, I don't think he does. I mean, how can he? You know, he can't see the end from the beginning. He's not God. But but nonetheless, and, and this passage is so clear to make this juxtaposition, whatever Joseph experiences, there's something deeper. There's something bigger behind the scenes. There's a plan that he does not know. And we are encouraged to put our trust in that God. I mean, we go through the same things in life. Um, you know, it, 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 I remember so many years ago, and I've shared this with you before. I mean, to make light of this in any way um, or to, to to make this trite, but when we lost our oldest daughter uh, at three months of age, 24 years ago, I, I had no idea what God was doing in that moment. And I still can't say with confidence you know, why that happened, but I can see ways that God has used that experience in my life and that loss uh, in my own growth and development, you know, ministry in different ways. There's a confidence when I read this and I look at my life, I say, God, I don't understand, but I trust I trust the God who is there and who does know the beginning from the end. Why do I trust? Well, secondly, you know, God has this plan. Secondly, it's his nature. What, what is really interesting about this, these passages, the, the frame here, 1 to 6 and 21 to 23, is that throughout, God is identified not by the term Elohim, uh, which is sort of the generic word for God it's it's a little bit like you know when we say god and then we say we have to clarify whether it's a capital g or a small g you know we can use the word god to talk about you know baal or we can use the word god to talk about the god that we worship that's elohim yahweh is different yahweh is god's personal name it's his covenant name and all throughout 1 to 6 and 21 to 23, it is Yahweh. Uh, Yahweh was with Joseph. Yahweh was with Joseph. Part of the way that you can know that is, you know, it's translated as Lord, and all of the letters are caps in your translation. That that's always the translation for for that name Yahweh, or if you're an old RSV or you can say Jehovah. Right? But that's his personal name. And, and what we realize here is that we have a personal God who can be known, who isn't just an abstract idea or force, but he engages with us in a personal way. He's revealed himself to us, to you. And he wants to be known that way. And this personal God has a personal love. You know, I love verse uh, 21, but the Lord, Yahweh, this personal God, was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. The Hebrew term for that is hesed. And and it's so tied up with who God is. It's repeated over and over again. Exodus 34, when Moses uh, asked God to reveal himself to him, he says, I am the God who practices hesed, the steadfast love. And that is where our confidence is. It's not just that God is powerful and he has a plan and he's controlling these things. But that he's personal, that he loves us, that he has given himself to us in such refreshing, such personal, such intimate ways. And one of the ways that we see this the clearest is that he's given us his very son. I don't know if you notice this, there's a pattern to Joseph's life. It's exaltation, humiliation, exaltation, humiliation, exaltation. You know, there's this pattern to Joseph's life. And when I start talking about exaltation, humiliation, exaltation, your mind should be drawn to the one who's so much greater than Joseph. The Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the very nature God, exalted, made himself nothing, disrobed, taking on the form of a servant, humiliated. But God was pleased with him and raised him from the dead, and he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father exalted, robed in a new righteousness, a robe, incidentally, that can never be taken away. He will never be disrobed, and by extension, you and I, with faith in Jesus, are robed in that same righteousness, and it can never be taken away. You see, this this story, it's not be like Joseph. This story is find yourself prostrate before Joseph's God because he is a God who delights, delights to enter into the risky propositions of our life in order to bring the certainty of reward. Do you know him? Have you placed all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength on that relationship? There is nothing else that will satisfy you. But he is so satisfying because of his great love for sinners. And incidentally, you know, Joseph comes, not on his own merit. There's room for Mrs. Potiphar. I don't know that she ever made it, you know, we're not told anything about it, but there's room for her. If she would find the Lord Jesus in repentance, because I know that, you know, when we talk about sexual sin, there's so much shame attached to it, but nothing, nothing, no sin, nothing that you've ever done can separate you from the love of God when you are willing to allow that love to pour over you through repentance and faith. It's a great story, and I'm excited to continue going on and seeing how God continues to develop Joseph and moves us ever closer uh, to the cross itself and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for these words that you give us. We ask that you would take them and that you would apply them deep in our hearts. Father, as we get ready to, to come to the table, that, that place where the, the vagaries of earth are met by the beauties of heaven, Father, as we prepare to come to this table, may it be so thirsty and hungry for the grace that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, we pray. Continue to hold us fast. In Jesus' name, amen.